The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Photography often provides an opportunity for reinvention. Though many have discovered photography at a young age and began early photographic careers, others have found their way to a photographic life a little later. Though we often hear about people who are dissatisfied with their initial careers and turn to photography for a more creative and fulfilling outlet, It's usually not the unhappiness itself that spurs the change. It can be the result of a job loss or a dramatic life experience. But there are some people, like today's guest, who make a conscious choice to change their lives so that they are working behind the camera. Dotan Sagai has achieved success as a high-tech entrepreneur, but he knew that photography for him was a calling. So he designed and structured his last venture to give him the flexibility to dedicate time to his photography, which includes street photography and documentary work for nonprofits. As we have learned so many times before on this show, there is no one way to leading a photographic life. It's really about finally making the choice to do so. Dotan, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to, to have you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be there. That's an honor. I know you were shooting for a long time before you transitioned from your previous career. How, how were you introduced to photography? Well, my dad was uh, a photographer. Well, he wasn't a professional photographer, but uh, the camera was always around. So as a kid, I was just familiar with, you know, hit, with, with the, the camera around. I as The real, I guess, introduction was for my wedding present. I got married really young. I got married around uh, 23 years old and uh, for my wedding present basically gathered all the money from uh, my friends and uh, that the, my friends had given me and uh, bought a, a Nikon at B&H or some New York shop back then and uh, so just started you know taking some photos for vacation and things like that so that was that was really the first time but I didn't get serious with it till very recently so um, even though I've been shooting for about 20 plus years now but you could say 95% of that was uh, really just kind of you know doing uh, you know vacation photos and kids photos and things like that and what was your career before you finally threw your head into doing photography as much as you do now uh, my career was in technology, so I was trained as a software engineer, moved from there to more project management of, of technology projects. I lived through the, the whole internet boom of the, the late uh, 90s and early 2000s, and I was an entrepreneur uh, several times over with different uh, types of businesses between uh, e-commerce and uh, then going into mobile, uh, the, the whole mobile boom. And still now I have a, a mobile app company that I manage on the side, but it's, it's taking very little time. I'm going to ask you this, and uh, I have talked to so many people who have gotten into photography, but whose careers revolved around technology, you know, who are like, who are like sort of IT guys or something like uh-huh. that. And I've heard that so much. And for you, why, why do you think photography was such a lure, isn't a lure for people who are in that, in that field? I know you don't have a comprehensive understanding of everyone who's picked up photographies in your you know career field, but I'm kind of curious as to no, what you think. I think there might be something there uh, in terms of uh, you know people in technology are always interested in, uh, in in gadgets and things like that, and I think you know photography. There's the the you know the the, the gas syndrome that like we call it the gear acquisition syndrome. Uh, you know, so I think a lot of photographers, a lot of te- technology people, love just experimenting with new gear and buying the latest camera and count the pixels and, and all of that. I would say for me, it's a little bit different, even though I am a gadget guy and I, I like to be on the forefront of technology. And I followed the whole um, transition from film to, to digital very closely. I, I think I, I always had a, 
a design uh, background that I wasn't really able to fully express in my in my career, but I was always interested in. Uh, as a kid, I was drawing and, and I won some drawing contests. And so I, it was always something I did on the side, the whole uh, design thing. And when the web happened, I, I actually started applying some of that by uh, helping the design and uh, figuring out the design for for applications for which at the, t- at the time were desktop applications, and I think I always try to apply this uh, throughout. Photography for me was just another way to draw. So uh, when uh, I finally had more time, because it was really the lack of time uh, that that was kind of holding holding me back from doing more photography and really dedicating myself to it. So when I started having enough time, when my businesses starting to kind of fade into the background in terms of priorities and time that I had to dedicate to them, I, I really started devoting my time to photography. And that's what really led me to uh, my, my current, the, the current way that I'm, I'm uh, spending my time, which is mostly in photography now. So was it a, was it a conscious choice to? Oh yeah, absolutely, Abs- yeah, absolutely. So I designed the last business that I set up. I designed it so that I could uh, eventually kind of spend less and less time uh, managing it and basically give other people, uh, empower other people to run the business or run different sides, different different aspects of the business better than I could. So I, I was able to extract myself for the most part. And, and that was, I designed it that way so that I could spend more time with photography. Why, why was that important to you? Because a lot of people, when they create a successful business and they're earning a nice income and they have a nice lifestyle, usually go on to pursue creating another business to earn more money, to you know create more sort of success in, in terms of way, the way most of most people look at it. Why why move away from that and do something along the lines of photography? Well, I had a couple of life events that uh, I, get, I guess made me think really hard about what I wanted to do with my life. One was uh, my father passing away at an early age about uh, over 10 years ago now and realizing that I didn't know how much time I had. You know, when you're, I guess, when you're in your 20s, it feels like you've got, you know, several lifetimes ahead of you and there's, you know, an unlimited amount of time. So you always have time to do whatever you want. When you're in your 30s, you're still in that mode. And some people don't really realize that their time is limited till they get like way into their 60s or 70s. In my case, it happened in my uh, late 30s with my dad passing away. And so that was one thing. And then the second thing is I had a very traumatic uh, ski accident about five years ago where I almost died. I was basically falling off the side of a cliff and uh, I I pretty much felt like I was dying as I was uh, coming down the the slope out of control and without my skis and seeing some boulders at the bottom that I was going to hit. So between these two things that kind of really reminded me about how uh, impermanent things are and I guess how you want to think hard about what you really want to do with your time, uh, that's really what turned me on to, to photography in a big way. And, and, you know, that's when I decided I, you know, it wasn't more money that I needed in my life or more validation about my technology skills, but w- what would make me happiest was to um, express myself more as an artist and, and as a photographer. I've, I've read on occasion where people who've had those near-death experiences have that sort of revelation where they, re- you know, where they think, God, I really need to change my life in some sort of dramatic way. It may not be a career, but it may be something else. Mm-hmm. But that many of them sort of slowly slip back into their old patterns of living and thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. What What do you think allowed you to sort of maintain your focus to to do to actually do those things? Because it's it's not easy. I mean, I know that you had some advantages in terms of the fact that you had created this business, but st- there can still be moments where it's kind of like, well, maybe I should just stick to what I've been doing. Um, I was ready to move on. I had started several other companies before. Um, I think I was the the one before this one before the mobile uh, company. I was a little bit burnt out in terms of the whole fundraising and managing lots of people and and all the responsibilities that came with it and feeling kind of trapped uh, once the business became successful and and through the ups and downs and, you know, all the responsibilities that weigh on your shoulders. And so after that, I was really ready to move on to something where I was going to be more independent. And at the time, I, I wasn't really seeing as far as photography. I was just hoping to set up a business where I would be independent 
didn't need to maybe work as hard and and have more time to reflect on what I really wanted to do. So, um, so it kind of came progressively, but I was already in my in my head. I was already past the you know seeking the entrepreneurial you know like becoming the new Google or anything like that. I was I was really uh, already determined to to uh, prioritize my uh, lifestyle and 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 uh, and my time and personal time uh, over you know making more money or, or big, building a bigger company kind yeah. of thing. And one of the advantages that provided you is that you didn't have to deal with the pressure of trying to make a living as a photographer. It just provided you the freedom to be able to just practice the kind of photography that you wanted you wanted to practice. Right, ex- exactly. That that was absolutely key. So, yeah, it, it was I had the luxury of being able to do that. It's it's not it's not obvious uh, for for everyone to to do this. I know a lot of photographers who are very very talented, but they're you know, somewhat held back by the fact that they they have to to make a living from their photography, and as such, they have to uh, you know do weddings and other things that they don't necessarily. I mean, there's very interesting wedding photos, but it doesn't necessarily go into their art portfolio or their their street portfolio that they really want to build. So um, I had the luxury to really be able to only focus on personal projects, which I realize is is uh, is, is not given to to everyone. So I, I'm I'm very uh, I feel very lucky to be able to to proceed that way. Um, you practice a good amount of, of uh, street photography in, in your work, but you just That's mentioned correct. personal projects. Can you give me an example of one of those early ones that that was uh, pivotal for you? Yeah, so I I really didn't start doing personal projects per se till fairly uh, late into this uh, this new era of my my photography. So, I, uh, the the personal project that I've been probably dedicating the most time uh, or that, that I started uh, first was this uh, Venice Beach project, mm-hmm. which started started about a year and a half ago. And uh, so I just decided if I was going to shoot street, I was shooting street all over LA or Paris or wherever I was, and I. Got a lot of interesting shots, but when I looked at it as a portfolio, it didn't quite gel together the way I wanted. So I, that's when I realized, hey, you know, I have, I seem to enjoy shooting in Venice more because I have maybe more successful shots there and I, I enjoy the process of shooting there and I, I, I like what I get there. So why not focus more on, on that part of LA? And that's when it kind of morphed into a, a personal project because then I was thinking, well, I could create a comprehensive body of work on Venice Beach, which I hadn't really seen. I mean, I've seen a lot of people taking great photos in, of Venice Beach and, and of, of life in Venice Beach, but uh, yeah, including some of the, the best, you know, most renowned photographers like Gary Winogrand and, and others spent a lot of time in Venice. But I hadn't, I couldn't get my hands on a solid book about the culture of Venice Beach. There were some historic things from uh, back, you know, maybe 70s, 80s or earlier from the skateboard culture. But it was always about one aspects of life in Venice Beach and not the, the comp- something comprehensive. And it, it, I couldn't find... So I couldn't find what what I wanted to make, which was that that book of uh, life in Venice Beach in in general. So that's why I decided, okay, that might be a good personal project for me to uh, to to do. And and I'm I live about twenty minutes away from Venice Beach, so uh, it's also a convenient one to uh, to choose because it's right in my backyard. It's a, and it's a very unique part of um, Los Angeles. Correct. And in a way, it's, I think it's also very uh, very much the opposite of a lot of aspects of LA. Uh, it's uh, to me. It feels a lot more real, and you know, you always hear about the the Beverly Hills and the Hollywood and and kind of the fakeness uh, sometimes of that 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 LA embodies uh, mm-hmm. in, in those areas. You know, the materialism and things like that. And Venice Beach sits at the entire op- you know t- total opposite, and it's world famous for for many historic things like you know Muscle Beach and uh, surfing and and the invention of of uh, modern skateboarding and all these things. So anyway, I thought it it make an it meaningful, you know, first personal project that was accessible to me. How long did it take you to sort of find a groove in terms of photographing there? And let me, let me clarify that because Venice can be one of the most chaotic places to shoot in. Correct. Because there are just so many people, there's so much going on, and it can be kind of difficult to sort of refine your vision discover sort of the interesting things that really serve your photography because you can easily just walk around there and not make any pictures just because you don't know where to start right when and how were you able to do that so 
I think I, I started walking around there and kind of taking it all in bef- and trying to make images, but unsuccessfully still for a while before I felt like I might have something. And one, there's one image in particular, and it's too, it's too bad we can't show, maybe you can show it on the blog or something, but there, one image in particular kind of encouraged me. And it was complete serendipity. It was one of those images that um, I was lucky to get. And it was a mix of luck and pre- preparation, I would say, because I was trying to put in action some things I had learned from a blog or from a book or something and, and some street photography tips that I was trying to put in action and the right situation presented itself. and. and and I was able to to capture it successfully for the first time, and where I felt like I had a really solid kind of portfolio worthy uh, shot from from Venice Beach, and that's what encouraged me to keep trying. And at first, it really required a lot of patience because I would, you know, I, I was emboldened by this for this first photo, so I would keep going back there, and it would take me a while to get a second shot of that caliber. It might have taken me two or three months before I got a second shot that was, you know, another shot worth putting in the portfolio. And then things accelerated a little bit and I would get good shots on a more regular basis. But yeah, it, it takes a while, I think, to find uh, one stride in, in a particular project or location. And it still happens. The, the fact that I'm able to do it now in Venice Beach doesn't mean I can do it elsewhere. I know I, I often I go uh, visit relatives in New York City and New York City obviously is known as a street photographer's dream. And I walk around with my camera and I'm completely stumped, just like I was in, you know, in Venice Beach early on. So it's not like because I've, I've, I feel like I've got it down in, in Venice Beach that I'm, I can reproduce this success somewhere else just on the fly. I think it's a matter of really feeling the vibe of a place and kind of knowing how to anticipate things that happen there. And then there's several things that help me, I think, find my groove, like you said, um, in terms of thinking through different things that could be interesting. So making a shot list is helpful for me, at least mentally, to have in my mind the different things that I'm looking for. Uh, Not that I would always capture what's on the shot list. Many times things happen that I've never thought could happen and I'm still, I still need to go and try to chase them. But I think having that structure in your mind of of possible shots opens the mind to uh, look for more things and, and, or to look for the shots that, that were uh, on that list. So I think it's, it's helpful. What was that first shot? Can you describe it to us? Yes. So um, the first shot was, Two two girls that that were about I don't know in their maybe early to mid twenties uh, on a bench and uh, they're very interesting looking with tattoos and uh, interesting haircuts and everything and they're holding two small dogs so each each one is holding a dog uh, one is also holding a f- uh, ice cream cone the other one is holding her phone mm-hmm. when I first approached them they were just chatting and I kind of stood. I had a 50, 50 millimeter on and I, I wanted like a kind of a close up of them, like in an environmental portrait where I would get the arcades of Venice Beach recognizable in the background, but them really taking most of the frame. Right. And so I approached, you know, I, I was basically standing right in front of them and trying to figure out the angle and everything. And obviously they, they obviously noticed me and looked at me and I said, this, you know, kind of the, the, uh, international gesture for is it okay to take a photo <laughs> it's just like i didn't even talk to them i think i was just kind of showing the camera and they nodded so, which you know kind of gave me permission to stick around and take a photo and i did take a photo but then i felt like they were too conscious of my presence and so i just stayed there for longer after taking that first shot since they had given me permission and they, at that point they just went right back to chatting and kind of forgot about me and two seconds later they were kissing and two guys in the background which i didn't see actually when i took the photo looked back at them were looking back at them and so i was able to get a photo of them kissing with the two dogs and the ice cream and the phone and then the two guys looking back from the background which you could i I love it when a, a story a photo 
tells a story or, or you can imagine a story from the photo, whether or not that was the reality of what was happening. Right. And so in this case, I could imagine the two guys that were ready to make their move and then saw the girls kissing and <laughs> were kind of disappointing. I mean, they're disappointed. You can imagine all sorts of stories. But to me, it was a very interesting street scene. And that also told a story. And, and I was able to capture it from close enough with enough intimacy and everything. And it's graphically interesting. And uh, so anyway, I was very proud of my myself that day. So yeah, I'm looking at that picture right now. It's a wonderful, wonderful shot. What Thank did you, you see in the shot that made you feel like I want to aspire to this? I mean, it's a great moment, but what, what were the elements that you were seeing that you started sort of hunting for when you went back out there to sh- create more images? So I wasn't aware of those elements back when I shot this photo, but later on, um, when I, I was in a uh, workshop where a photographer named Craig Sumetko uh, taught uh, a an, an acronym that stands for that spells out D I N E, which are to him the ingredients to a successful street photograph. This acronym has stuck with me, and and what the the acronym spells out is D, so D I E die, which is easy to remember, obviously, and what what it stands for is design for the D information, the I, and E is emotion. There's lots of acronyms that people make for make out for these, uh, you know, for what a, a successful photograph is. And I've heard of you know five-letter acronyms and four-letter acronyms. Mm-hmm. To me, what resonated with me with this one was it really boiled down to to the essence. Uh, with the three letters, first of all, for me is much easier to remember. Easy, and D to me is kind of a given. So really, all I have to keep in mind is the I and the E. D- design is, is stands for the, the composition, could be the, the light, could be um, the layering of the photo and things like that. But to me, that's kind of a given. When you first learn through books or magazines and everything, they all, you know, they teach you about the rule of thirds and all these things. So I think every photographer who's learned a little bit knows that design is important. And I, I think most people who start making their first successful photographs, design is what they nail first. Because uh, that—that's really what they're taught first, and and what's most obvious when you look at a photo. But to me, what was missing up to then in my photos was probably the the element of uh, information and and emotion um, primarily. And information, um, what what uh, Craig meant with information is that you can tell what's happening or you can imagine a story in your head from what you see in the photo. And there's enough elements, enough clues in the photos that are obvious and clear that that you can do that, uh, that the viewer can do that. And um, so, so it means, you know, that there has to be enough contrasts um, uh, in the areas that where that information is. And it means that the information needs to be big enough and obvious enough. And it's not... Information to me is, is, is a hard one, much harder than people would think to capture because when you're in a scene, when you're experiencing a scene like this in front of you, you have a lot more elements that you can see with your eyes than what you can capture with your camera. Uh, you have to fit in that frame a lot of things that you don't, that you take for granted as a, as a uh, I guess as a witness to that scene mm-hmm. uh, but but to capture all those elements it could be you know because you're smelling things you're you're hearing things uh, you can turn your your head 360 degrees and see, you know see the the whole environment but when you need to capture this with your 50 millimeter you know this very constrained two-dimensional picture uh, to, to try to uh, put all, all this this feeling that w- what you're experiencing in, in that little uh, two-dimensional frame, it's much harder. So the information part is, is very hard to nail down to make it obvious to the viewer what the information is that you're, you're uh, transmitting. And then the emotion to me is a whole nother level also of complexity to, to get that the moment where you can either see an emotion um, on in the frame or you can trigger that emotion in the viewer by what's what showing what's in the frame. Yeah. I mean, you increase your chances of getting the information, the emotion by photographing at, at people actively doing something, which is, is what you see in a lot of the images that uh, are on your site for, for, for the Venice work. It's not what people call, people typically think of when they think of street photography, which is people walking down the street where they're right, where they're not really sort of doing anything except 
you know, moving from point A to point B. But by being at a location where you have a diversity of people actively doing things, you sort of increase your chances of being able to get the I and the E of, of, right. uh, of the diet principle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I really believe that to to get those kinds of street photography images, you, you have to put yourself in those places where there's a lot of action and interaction. Uh, you hear a lot if you go to photojournalism school, you hear a lot about a- action interaction. That's what they want in the photos. Um, and that's usually when you get those emotions. Uh, it's kind of like if you go fishing, you don't just go randomly in the middle of the ocean. You go in the spots that are known to be good spots for fishing. And I think for, for street photography, it's the same thing. If you want those emotions and that kind of information in your pictures, you have to go where that information is and, uh, and that, that emotion is. And that's where I think uh, Venice Beach is really uh, is a great place for that. And there's spots specifically in Venice Beach that I think are great for, for the, you know, have a more higher likelihood for these things to happen. And, and the great thing about this location and with a lot of other locations, but especially Venice, is the idea that, you know, people go there to see and be seen. And right. so the presence of the camera is a lot less prohibitive than it would Correct. be if you're just walking down Wilshire Boulevard in Midtown and yes, approach people to make a photograph. That, that's right. And one of the areas, before I focused on Venice Beach, I was photographing all over LA. And one, uh, curiously, one place I didn't think would be hard to photograph or, or um, wouldn't be hard for a photographer to be uh, was uh, Beverly Hills. Uh, I, I discovered <laughs> Beverly Hills is one of the hardest places to shoot yeah. because uh, because of two things, actually, I, both of which I didn't expect. One is the, the whole privacy thing where people are freaked out when you have a camera that you're invading their privacy or the privacy of their children or something, which didn't happen in any other area of L.A. to me, even areas uh, like Boyle Heights where the, they might have gangs and things like that. I, I didn't get that. But but in Beverly Hills, um, I, I did feel that in a big way. And the other thing is that everybody assumes when you have a, a professionally professional-looking camera or you have two cameras around your neck uh, in Beverly Hills that you're a paparazzi. So <laughs> so that was the other thing is people would, you know, the tourists would, would look at me and say, are you, uh, you know, are you, are you, expecting like a celebrity or something or you're a paparazzi and <laughs> so it was very distracting so the, those two things made it really hard and I, I don't like shooting in Beverly Hills I don't really go back there anymore uh, for those reasons tell me about because um, I know that you started submitting your images to uh, the National Geographic website yes and that was sort of pivotal for you in terms of you getting your work out there tell us about about that yeah, I mean, so I think it's my, my marketing uh, maybe side, you know, that I've um, kind of uh, learned through my, my startup, technology startup experience. I figured if, if I was going to submit work and try to get my work recognized, I might as well uh, do it with brand names that would uh, add to my you know, CV and, and that would be uh, respectable brand names that people would recognize. So National Geographic happens to have this community called Your Shot. And um, they uh, allow people to um, submit. Um, I, I actually mistakenly on, on that BNH talk, I said five, I think it's 15 uh, photos per week. And so you can just freely submit your photos. It doesn't cost anything. And they each day, each weekday, they review the photos that they received and they publish 12 of them as what they call the daily dozen. And those photos, you can look at them. There's a, you know, a history of them where you can look at what people, what was selected for the Daily Dozen for the past few years. You can look at each day and some, some of the stuff that's there is very, very impressive, but it's all submitted by amateur photographers. And it's, it's, since it's free to submit, you can really increase your chances by submitting often. And you obviously want to be selective uh, because the, the editor is, you know, otherwise I think after a while the editor doesn't really take you seriously. But mm-hmm. so you don't want to go and dump your entire hard drive just, you know, just kind of a, out of hope that they, they might select something. But I think if you, if you select your, your best images and things that fit within what they typically pick, I think there's a, people have a good chance to get published. And then you can, you can claim you've been published on National Geographic's website, which um, they actually call it a publication themselves. So they and they count how many publications you get. So that was very useful to me um, in, initially because uh, 
you know, I, I had some some things in my portfolio that fit the profile of what they were looking for, and it was free to submit. And I, I so I started I started submitting my photos there, and I very quickly got uh, some some things published. So it was very satisfying. So how do you sort of leverage that? Because when you get opportunities, it's it's great to have the acknowledgement, but you know, it sometimes means very little if you don't use that as a launching pad to move on to something else. So how how did sure. you use it? So yeah, you, know, you use it in your social media, and and uh, so you you can start telling the you know people who follow you on social media that that you were published there. I you know put it on my website. On my website, I also have. If you go to my website, you'll see that some of the images have um, in the bottom corner a National Geographic uh, publication logo with a uh, where I'm, I'm specific about where it was published and what date. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's also a, a way to remind people. Any anyone I sent to my website. Uh, now I can see the you know those images with the the credibility that that backs them from from National Geographic, so that's uh, that's really helpful. The one caveat I want to put on this is uh, I want to say I, I I'm not I don't submit photos to your shot uh, to National Geographic your shot anymore. One because I feel like I've gotten enough publications there that I don't really need more to make my my case from, from that standpoint in terms of the publicity and so on. Uh, two is because. When you do submit there, the it doesn't cost you anything monetarily, but they reserve the rights to publish those photos uh, in any of their publications and for free. So they'll never pay you. Mm-hmm. They'll never pay me for publications of any of those photos. Even if, say, 20 years from now, <laughs> they decide to to uh, publish one of those photos in the magazine on the cover, which will never happen. But if they did so, I would not get a penny. I decided at this point that, you know, as I build up my portfolio, I, I would like to to be able to uh, keep the rights. Well, it's not that you lose the rights, but I would like to be able to, if the if the case presented itself, to monetize those photos, as opposed to them just using them for free. You know, you, as you said before, you weren't getting into this in order to make a living as a photographer, but you, you certainly wanted to have something to do with your work. Um, you want it to sort of find a home in one in one way or another. You don't want it just sitting on your hard drive. So how did you start thinking about what this career as a photographer would look like? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's very satisfying to start publishing some things and, and build a portfolio. But at the end of the day, uh, as I was doing this, more and more I decided that you know, street photography was very satisfying just from a I guess meditation perspective for me it's very meditative to go out to Venice Beach and sometimes I actually don't even press the shutter I just walk around and I don't see anything that is um, you know that attract my attention but attracts my attention but it's just a good time I also like to contribute so I um, decided I, I wanted to build a portfolio, but I wanted to do it in a way that could also help others. Uh, and so it was initially, I, I was just trying to see if I could make decent images and, and, and publish them. That was my first step. And I got that validation pretty quickly with National Geographic and some others. When, as soon as that was established, I wanted to, you know, I decided I, I you know, I, because I didn't need the income from, from this, I needed to find another meaning for, for, for what I was doing. And uh, that's when I decided to take on uh, documentary photography and go the photojournalism route and and uh, try to help uh, nonprofits or NGOs um, document what what they do and and spread the word about good things that they do. So uh, one of the projects I started working on was uh, about people coming out of homelessness in in L.A., Mm-hmm. And obviously, we've got this huge uh, homeless uh, problem in LA that's been very, very difficult to to resolve. And there's lots of organizations that are working on making strides in in getting people out of that homelessness or preventing them to, from falling into homelessness. And so, I'm starting to work with some of those organizations to document what they do. And that's one way that I've found to apply my street photography knowledge and my photojournalism knowledge to make a difference and and sort of give back. Um, and, uh, and I do that work, uh, mostly pro bono. Sometimes I get paid a little bit, but it's, it's, uh, it's mostly just to help, 
those organizations. And when I get paid, actually, it's it's really more <laughs> so that uh, I think when you get paid, people uh, tend to take you more seriously and don't jerk you around as much. So it's 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 more so you know for for the efficiency of the work more so than for the you know the actual. Sometimes I actually get the money and I just give it right back to the organization. Uh, it's it's really um, uh, in that in that frame of mind that, uh, that, that I'm doing this work. I, I see that you uh, attended the uh, Missouri Photographic Workshop. Correct. Uh, which is an intense experience for people who are not familiar with it. Very much so. Why don't you describe uh, what it is uh, to, to our listeners and uh, tell us how you found your story and, and a, little, a little about it. Sure, absolutely. I, I actually attended both the Missouri Photo Workshop and the Eddie Adams Workshop back-to-back, uh, four days apart. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you <laughs> so, survived. Kudos. Yeah, yeah. so it, it was, uh, that was quite, a, quite an experience. I applied to both. These are workshops for those people, for people who are not, are not familiar. These are the two top photojournalism workshops probably in the world. And they're extremely intense workshops. And typically, you apply and you, you know, you apply several times before getting in. I got very lucky to be accepted into both uh, on the first try and in the same year. So I didn't plan for this. I, I thought I, at best I might be uh, accepted into one, and and then I got accepted into both, and I had to kind of figure out, okay, how, how do I now do both in, in a row? The Missouri, they're very different workshops, though. They're both very intense. Uh, I did the Missouri Photo Workshop first, and this uh, the Missouri Photo Workshop is – a uh, workshop organized by the University of Missouri, but you don't have to be a student there. They, they, uh, you, you can apply. Any, anyone can apply, and they, um, they get 45 students into a small uh, uh, town of Missouri. So it's a different town of Missouri each time, and their goal is to document rural Missouri uh, over time. There, I believe, they're on the. That was the 67th workshop, so they, they've been at this for for a long time. It might be the longest running photojournalism workshop in the world. And what it's like is um, you get into this town and you have to find your story. You spend your first couple of days um, going around the town. Typically, these are small towns, three to 5,000 people, and you have to find your story. And once you get your story approved by the faculty, so you, in the evening you go back and you present your case for the story and what you want to shoot and how you want to shoot it, and your faculty, which is this amazing lineup of uh, faculty, in, in my case, it was most actually about half the faculty was from National Geographic or ex-National Geographic. The other half was from various uh, publications, Washington Post and so, and so on. And they have to um, accept your story, approve your story, and then you go and shoot it for the rest of the week. And you each night you come back. You drop your card. There's this, this very uh, well regimented process where you drop your your memory card, and they they all, and you're not you're not allowed to delete anything, so you can't delete any photo that you take, mm-hmm. and you're only allowed to shoot 400 photos, 400 frames in that whole week. So between the not being able to delete and the limit, the 400 frame limit, you have to be very careful <laughs> before taking every shot. And it, it's at first I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to how am I going to even adjust to this? Because I'm used to really getting those moments by shooting a lot. You know, when I see I, I don't shoot a lot in general, but when I see something happening, I really try to overshoot it. So I get the shot at the end and, and I couldn't do that there. So it was a. It was an interesting way of relearning to shoot, and uh, so anyway, uh, that 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 was uh, that was an intense intense week uh, shooting uh, sh- shooting a story in in Cuba, Missouri. And what did you do your story on? So my story was um, so I, I actually uh, prepared a little bit before the workshop, and I read up on Cuba, Missouri, which is where we ended up uh, shooting, and kind of researched the town a little bit and the different businesses in the town. And I had found this really interesting uh, barrel uh, factory that uh, I guess is one of the biggest barrel factories in the, in the U.S. And they, they make barrels for for bourbon and for also for wine that they ship all over the world. So there's people using their barrels in Spain and France and so on and so forth. So and they still make them the old fashioned way. So when I saw that online, I was like, oh, that, that could be a really interesting place 
to, to shoot. And um, so I actually made contact before arriving um, in, in Cuba, Missouri. And so once I got there, I went to see the, the people and, and made sure that they were okay with me shooting there and I explained what, you know, what, what I wanted to do the story on. And, and uh, so it was a little bit easier probably for me than for some other students that just got there and started looking for a story but they wouldn't let let me get away with just that one story idea so they they pushed me to go and look around for other stories uh, they wanted me to have two or three other uh, backup stories so i did spend my first couple of days uh, walking around the town like everybody else trying to look for stories and that was uh, that was an interesting experience because every everywhere you know it's a very small town everywhere you went uh the you know the people that you spoke to already had spoken to two or three yes, other yes, <laughs> photographers uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and said oh no we're already doing this story with someone else or go see this other person it's um it was a true a real hustle it was it was uh it was really interesting a lot of pressure i I did that workshop too and uh yeah it is it's intense because you you get off there and it's like okay jump into the pool that's go find your story and it's like what what i mean yeah yeah but it's 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 interesting to be challenged in that in that way uh, absolutely. And it also teaches you that there are stories everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, those small towns, I mean, you wouldn't... Uh, so some people um, got really, really interesting stories. And in, in hindsight, my story was very visually appealing with, you know, fire and wood and people putting, you know, barrels together and s- sawdust. And, you know, so it was very, very cool to shoot but didn't really have as much heart as some of the other stories that other people found. Um, you know, in hindsight, uh, there were uh, stories with more of a social um, aspect or, you know, someone did a story about a Hispanic family in that small town where, you know, it was like 99.5% white mm-hmm. and, and what their experience was. And, and so anyway, there they, they were very, very interesting stories that came out of it. Um, it's, it's amazing to see that that's part to me was, Part of the appeal to be in that workshop was not just from my own experience, but to see what others uh, could find and how they would shoot it. And you just learned as much from other people uh, in the workshop as, as you learned from the, from the faculty. It was it was an amazing experience. So how have you found that, you know, this experience getting in-depth with photojournalism and your experience in street photography has shaped the way that you see and, and make images? Well, I think... At the end of the day, whether you're talking about street photography or photojournalism or documentary photography, it's all about storytelling. Uh, I mean, the, those those are really that's what it boils down to. So, I you know I think that there's different ways. You know, either street photography is more you go you know in a I guess ge- geographic location and you try to find stories in the street. Photojournalism, you probably have a story in mind and you go to the location where you can shoot that story and work with the people that the story is about. But in the end, you're you're telling a story. So I think um, learning photojournalism helps you be better at street photography and street photography helps you be better as photojournalism because maybe you have a, a better uh, a graph, you know, you, you're more uh, graphically oriented or, or design oriented in your photo, in your photojournalistic photographs. So I think all these things are complementary and, and make you a better storyteller at the end of the day. You know, I see that you were in uh, Cuba and also in Korea. Um, and, um, you know, you, when you go to locations that you're not very familiar with, like, you, you know, like you described when you went to um, initially went to certain locations, you might sort of struggle to get into that groove as opposed to where you were in Venice. But right. when you when you go to a like a foreign country in a, in a place you've never been before, you, you know, your synapses are firing almost simultaneously. There's so much stimulus. There's so mm-hmm. much that you're seeing. So when you go out to these locations and you're only there for a finite period of time, what are the steps that you take so that you can sort of slow yourself down so that you can actually, you know, make the best images possible? So uh, I'll, I'll talk more about Cuba because this is really where um, I organized that trip as a as a real photo, um, like as a professional travel photography trip. And what I did there is, I'd say months before, probably a couple months before I left, I started studying lots of books that people had shot about Cuba. So thankfully, it's a location that has been shot so much that there's a lot of content out there. So I, I took those books that my process was, 
taking in all the, those books and, and trying to study the what was done by those other photographers and then making a shot list for myself of situations or, or aspects of life in Cuba that I wanted in my photograph in my photographs so I, I made a very specific shot list you know a few pages long uh, of all those situations that I had seen in other people's work that I wanted to also uh, be able to shoot and then I started working with a fixer. So I identified someone on site who was familiar with um, the the place and and uh, could find those situations for me and do some uh, location scouting of uh, for for those situations. So I started working with them several weeks before going, where they would go to locations and give me several options. You know, a barber shop. Okay, I've got like seven different barber shops, but I want I would love one where the lighting is such or that. You know, so so I would I would let them do all that, all that prep work without me being there uh, and then come back with snapshots of, okay, here's what it looks like. Is that okay? Or is this okay? So a lot of upfront work that way. I would say once I got there, you know, the, the, the shot list and, and all the prep work was very helpful, but then there was, you know, I left some time also to kind of feel out, you know, well, as you said, you're overwhelmed with everything, but at the same time, I think you have the advantage of not taking everything, anything for granted, so you might you see lots of things that Cubans don't see anymore, and um, it only happens for the first few days. I think by the end of even that week, I started to not see some of the things that I had seen on the first day. So you know, I, I try to take advantage of that. It's almost like a superpower where you're able to see things, uh, you know, pick up on details and decide. Okay, this is to me as a newcomer to this culture. These are really representative of um, those are things that are really worth capturing. And so trying to uh, hone in on, on these things that may be obvious to the locals, but you know to people back home, they'll be uh, very, uh, very interesting. So that, that's, that's how I, I approach this trip. And then it's working hard once you're there. I was there for six days and I shot from basically sunrise to after sunset every day with very little, very few breaks. Because uh, I, I could only stay for a week, so I, I really wanted to get the most out of it. And, you know, and that speaks to an important point. I was actually just wrote about that uh, the other day. This idea of not taking sort of vacation with family, where you you know where you get to practice some photography, but taking trips where you exclusively focus on making pictures, so that you can spend the entire day making photographs or how that, how critical that is to the development of any photographer, whether they're doing it for themselves or because they've been hired to do some work. Yeah, absolutely. And this Cuba trip was actually triggered by, uh, for me by another family trip that I had taken um, a few months earlier. I, I, I went to Peru with my family and as a, you know, as I was starting, I was really starting to get really serious with my photography and I was very frustrated during that trip. And I was also frustrated my family quite a bit by trying to take some professional, to do some professional photography as I was vacationing with my family. And it didn't work for either of us. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they were angry at me. I was angry <laughs> at them. It was, I, my photos weren't that good. And uh, it, it ended up being, a, a, and I ended up with almost no family photos. <laughs> so, um, so it, it was a complete disaster, and, and it made me really want to schedule time uh, in a, a trip just for photography. So it's exactly when I planned the trip for, for Cuba, uh, so I could do it just purely for professional photography. And I just did a, a vacation, and I, I just came back uh, for this uh, winter vacation. I took uh, two weeks in, in Bali with my family, and I, learning from that whole thing, I only took family photos. I did no professional photography whatsoever. Uh, I shot everything with my iPhone and, uh, and, and I had a terrific vacation. I have no portfolio shots to, 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 to bring back, but, uh, but I had a great time. That's great. That's great. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, my personal um, hero is is Alex Webb. I would oh, say, Alex, that, yeah, 
mm-hmm. that's the that's really the photographer that inspires me the the most and that I've probably learned the most from. Uh, even though I've actually never met him in in person, I probably missed him a couple of times when he uh, came to um, LACP, uh, Los Angeles Center of, of Photography, to to present. Um, I think he came before I started getting really serious with photography, so I didn't know who he was and I didn't attend. Um, but but he's uh, he's a terrific photographer. He's known for his I guess for layering. He's like a master layer. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the layers in his photos are just stupendous uh and and i've learned a lot from from him on from that standpoint he's most he shoots mostly color and i shoot mostly black and white so it's not exactly um when you see his photos you don't you know i guess you wouldn't recognize his style and it's like it it's not obvious that i'm uh i've learned a lot from him but i I, he's he's just been a huge inspiration for me And, and his book uh the suffering of light is probably my, my number one uh, book in terms of the one that I go back to the most often and I just study the, the photos, try to pick up things that I, I can uh, put into my own photography. Oh, yeah. those His images are images that I will look at, I will take apart and put back together because there's so much to learn from them. Absolutely. And he's got, I love that he's got several images in each photograph. There's like several, he, he, he just, he's like a, a master at juxtaposing moments. And so you'll have in the same frame, you know, three different moments happen at, happening at the same time and, you know, completely separated. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing work. Well, I hope to get him and his wife on this show before the end of the year. So oh, keep, that'd be keep your fingers crossed. Absolutely. I'll, I'll look forward to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That was a, a real pleasure for me to, to be here. If you're going to be in Los Angeles on the weekend of February 3rd and 4th, come down to the Los Angeles Center of Photography for the culmination of LA Street Week. A week-long dedication to street photography ends with two days of presentations by a dozen accomplished street photographers. Photographers will include David Ingraham, Matt Stewart, Renzi Ruiz, Michelle Groskopf, John Free, and Julia Dean. I'll also be doing a presentation on Saturday on my own work and approach to street photography. You can find out more by visiting LACP.org or clicking on the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Dotan for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can find out more about Dotan and his work by visiting dotansagai.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Trapanee Photo for their five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on our donation link on the website. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including Gary R. Hook, Christopher Cintron, and Meta Image. I can't thank you enough. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. Remember to help spread the word. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.